0: Welcome to the first episode of Persuasion and the Public Mind. I'm your host, Mark Bordin. During the course of this podcast series, I'll be engaged in conversation with scholars and practitioners in the fields of communication, psychology, and media studies. We'll be discussing the theories, techniques, and potential effects of persuasion and social influence as it comes to us through the media and in person. My goal is to provide an informative introduction to the topic of persuasion and offer additional resources that you can research on your own. Visit us on the web at anchor.fm forward slash persuasion. Well, we uh, live in a world where persuasive messages and conversations are everywhere. Depending on your media usage and exposure to the outside world, you may be confronted with hundreds of messages each day. Our interaction with various forms of communication can influence not only our purchasing decisions, but choices we make about our future and the future of our communities and culture. We could certainly ignore this notion of influence and pretend we are wise or immune to its methods if the stakes were not so high. Paraphrasing journalist Bill Moyers, the stakes are our sense of meaning and language, our ideas of history, democracy, and citizenship, and our very notions of beauty and truth. I want to start off today's program by defining some terms and talking about some ideas that will set the stage for future discussions of persuasion. For starters, What are media cultures and how do they affect us? To answer that question and a few more, I'm going to talk with Timothy Borchers, author of the book Persuasion in the Media Age and vice president for academic affairs at Peru State College. Welcome to the podcast, Tim. Thanks for being here. Let me start out by offering a basic definition of media culture which, you know, could be described as a specific method of presenting information within a society. Does that sound right to you, or how would you alter that? Yeah, no, I think that it'd be
1: probably the primary or the predominant way of communicating within a different society or within a culture.
0: Yeah, okay. Um so can you, you know, briefly uh talk about uh media cultures uh that we have and the differences between them uh, maybe starting with the uh, oral cult- culture?
1: Sure. So oral culture is what uh many of us in the western world would would think was a long time ago. Uh, Still a lot of people in the world communicate only orally. They don't have a written communication method or an alphabet. And so the communication in this kind of culture is face-to-face. There's no way of emailing someone or no way of sending a letter. You have to actually talk with them. So it's a very immediate, you have to be in their physical presence so they can hear you and so you can hear them. Um, Some of the ways that this influences our thinking is that we're not able to conceive of abstract thoughts. We can only conceive of those things that are physically present, and um, a lot of the ways of communicating in this culture was through narratives or through stories, so people would tell stories to each other and that was the way of passing along information, creating knowledge and communicating with people. And then when the printing press was developed, uh, that really changed things because now you could send out communication to people. You could publish a book and people from different geographic areas could read that book. Uh, You could read what someone had written and not be physically present with them. You wouldn't have to actually see them. You could just read their words. And so it separated the receiver and the communicator from each other in a way that, um, created some changes to how how those people would interact. linear thought was introduced. So as you read a book, you're reading one word and then the next word. So it's a very linear way of of going. You go from chapter one to chapter two to chapter three. And uh, very different than when you tell a story, which may be repetitive at times, and it may not always follow a linear, a linear fashion. Mm-hmm. And also some of the scholars say that abstract thought is possible in a literate or a linear uh, culture because you're now able to write about things that aren't physically present and you're able to describe things that happened in the past or maybe predict things that will happen in the future. So it kind of really changed how people, how people thought logic or kind of our rational way of thinking uh, came about during this time period and so that was um symbolic logic and some of the different ways of testing arguments some of the different ways of communicating arguments were really developed during this time period and then when television and radio came along and television to a much greater extent than radio uh, really created an electronic culture in which now we're separate from the uh sender of the communication the receivers are but they feel like they're there so if you Uh, watch something on television now we have 4k ultra high definition it almost feels like the person on the TV is is right in the room with us we have um, FaceTime and various video conferencing so we're able to have some very realistic um, personifications of people that that aren't there but it feels like they are it also creates a a lot of vicarious experiences Uh, we're able to watch reality TV shows for instance and Think we know what it's like to, to live like a Kardashian or, or something like that. So we're mm-hmm. able to have those kinds of experiences with people, uh, even though they're, we feel like we're present and participating with them, we're not. And so there's still that division there. But also it, it really privileges images over writing. Right. Uh, it privileges, again, that the narrative comes back, that, that narratives become uh, very important. And kind of what, what stories we hear, what stories we believe, becomes the way that we create the knowledge in the world. So in some ways the electronic culture looks a lot like the oral culture, uh, but obviously there's a lot of technology involved, imagery involved as well. And then the new media culture, uh, kind of an offshoot of the electronic culture, has created a very interactive style where you can interact with people on Facebook or Twitter or text messaging, Snapchat, whatever the case might be. Uh, again, it's a very nonlinear style, and it's very different than, than what even the – there aren't often images involved, yet – A lot of the time you're responding to images, you're responding to previously created knowledge. Um, When you text someone just a couple of words and they know exactly what you're talking about and you don't have to tell them the whole story, really abbreviate some of the the stories that we tell. So Mm -hmm. kind of as as we've gone through Western culture, we've gone from an oral to a literate to an electronic to a new media style of, of communicating, and they've all had different facets that have been significant and they've also changed how we communicate and how we think about the world in which we live.
0: So what was media scholar Marshall McLuhan telling us when he said, the medium is the message?
1: So McLuhan said, yes, the medium is the message. And what he's saying is that how we perceive something determine, or plays a role in what that that communication means to us. So if you are Uh, reading something in a newspaper, you're going to have a different uh, view of of the event, you're able to go back and reread things that you might have missed, Uh, you're able to uh, maybe pull up some other sources and and take a look at um, sourcing the article that you're reading. Um, Usually articles in newspapers, for instance, are much longer, so you're getting a lot more context, Uh, you're getting a lot more information. And if you would watch a short news clip where you would uh, see an abbreviated story, it would be full of imagery that would take on meaning of its own and that will, would provide some meaning for it. It's obviously shorter, so you're not getting the full message, and if you miss something, you've got to either hit your DVR or you've got to replay it if it's on YouTube or something so that you can see it again, whereas if you're reading it in a newspaper, you can, you can just go back and, and look it up. So I think that's an example maybe of how uh, reading something in a newspaper versus watching a news story on television would give you different in- impressions, different interpretations, different meanings for that, for that event.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um what about uh Neil Postman's uh, observations about uh, media and knowledge? So Neil Postman, uh he was writing back in the nineteen
1: eighties. He um he wrote some very fun books to read. I, I highly recommend them. Uh, he talked a lot about how knowledge was fragmented, and so we get bits and pieces. You never really get the full story. You're getting a little bit from here and a little bit from there. Uh, you read something on Facebook, and then you read about it on Twitter, and then maybe you watch something on the, the news, or maybe someone sends you an article or something that shares. So you're, getting, you're never really getting the full story. You're never getting a holistic story. Uh, you're getting uh, different fragments that then you have to put together as a receiver to make sense and to make meaning of what you're receiving. He also talked about the important role of television and how that predominates our culture. And so, um, you know, when you see political speeches, for instance, they're they're set up for television. Uh, the cameras are positioned in such a way to show the candidate. All the supporters are behind them. There's lots of signs. And so really that becomes a very powerful image that contributes to the story that's being told and the knowledge that's being created about it. Uh, He also talked about knowledge requiring specific processing skills. And so that's where I think, uh, as a culture, we're not fully able to dissect some of the messages that we get. And I think the Facebook messages that propagated during the 2016 election is a good example where, you know, people saw these seemingly true statements put out by their friends and and family members, and so they forwarded them on, and, and it was hard to really tell what was real, what was fake. And so we've we've kind of lost that ability to uh, use linear reasoning, to use logical reasoning to dissect and to test evidence and to present counter evidence and to come to a conclusion about it. Uh, so he, he said, in order to really make sense of the world, you have to really be able to use those skills. And then he talked a lot about invisible technologies. And so he talked about, um, we don't fully understand the impact of some of the technology that we're using. And again, I think some of the Facebook and Twitter examples are great. We don't even know who the source of that um, message is. We just kind of take it at face value. You don't understand how a Facebook message is, uh, carefully targeted for your particular demographic. And so, what we see appear in our feed, we don't quite understand all the, the details behind it and all the invisible aspects of what it took to get that message to appear to us.
0: In your book, you say that inherent in what's called the postmodern condition is a struggle for power as persuaders attempt to control the meaning of events, images, and symbols. True enough? True enough.
1: Um, The struggle today is to to make sense if you uh, just watch the cable news networks. Uh, You can watch Fox News, you can watch CNN, you can watch MSNBC, any of them. They can take the same event that took place that day and they have all totally different perspectives on what that means, uh, what it even was, if it's true or not. Uh, They all bring in their experts to try to diagnose the situation and to determine what's what's reality. And in the end, you know, it's, it's really difficult to pin down exactly what something means because a lot of it's speculation. And then even even facts these days, we, we dispute what the facts are. We don't have a common way of understanding even how to make decisions about what would be true or not. Take the, the recent climate report that came out from the, the federal government um, Right, before, right after Thanksgiving this year um, we don't have a good set of standards to evaluate the evidence that's presented there uh, because we hear so many different voices because people are trying to control what those what those messages mean and What standards we use. So it's really a confusing time for a lot of people. It's a time where we live in different worlds. Uh, If you watch a different TV source than your neighbor, it 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 doesn't even really matter that you live in the same neighborhood because you are seeing the world so differently. You you've uh, the images that you've surrounded yourself with, the kinds of uh, truths that you hold to be. Uh, deer are very different than, than what your neighbors are. So really kind of breaks down a lot of the different structures, a lot of the power relationships, a lot of the ways that we've come to understand our world over the past few years.
0: Got it. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, switch gears a little and uh, talk about definitions for words like uh, persuasion and uh, propaganda. Um, a lot of us uh, think we have a pretty good idea about what persuasion is. But, just so we're all on the same page, let's define it more specifically. Um, In your book, you write that persuasion is the co-production of meaning that results when an individual or a group of individuals uses language strategies and or other symbols such as images, music, or sounds to make audiences identify with that individual or group. So it seems to me uh, the key words in that sentence uh, are um, co production of meaning, uh, indicating that the persuasion process is a, a two way street uh, between the creator and receiver of the message. Yes?
1: Yes. And and it really contrasts with some of the earlier ways of thinking about persuasion as maybe a, a hypodermic needle or a shot where you simply inject the receivers with a persuasive message and they respond accordingly. Uh, that was the early way of thinking. And, and the new way of thinking is that Receivers are so different. They come from different cultural backgrounds. They have different belief systems. They have different abilities to understand persuasive messages that when a message is presented to a person or to a group of people, they bring their own meaning to that message as well. And then what ends up resulting, the the persuasion or lack thereof, uh, really results on how well the, the two parties are able to identify with each other. And so identification is another important part of that definition. But it really means that it's, a, in some ways, it's a cooperative act, even though the two sides might not explicitly state that they're cooperating. It does take uh, both sides or multi-sides, in, in many cases, to come to understand what what a persuasive message actually means in a, de- in a given situation.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, got it. Okay, I, I think of uh, propaganda as a subcategory of persuasion, but uh, let's make a distinction between the, between the two. Uh, um, I've often used the definition written by uh, Paul Martin Lester in his book uh, Visual Communication Images with Messages. Uh, he writes... Persuasion uses factual information and emotional appeals to change a person's mind and to promote a desired behavior. In contrast, propaganda uses non-factual or one-sided information or opinions that appear to be facts, along with emotional appeals, to change a person's mind and promote a desired behavior. Uh, Would you alter or uh, agree with that uh, definition, and how do you think we should think? of propaganda and persuasion in order to avoid confusion.
1: I think generally I would agree with that definition or or distinction. I think propaganda too often comes from sources that we can't readily identify. So it's that Facebook uh, message that appears that people have shared and we don't really know what the source of that message is. Um, and, and like you say, it's not necessarily based on factual information. It's often based on information that uh, either flatters the receiver or somehow appeals to what what the, the sender thinks the receiver already believes. So it's often reinforcing uh, behaviors. It's often, uh, it's quite often that the source is not revealed and then it may use um false or misleading uh, methods of argumentation as well. So the, the rationale is, is not there behind a, a propaganda message. And usually there's no opportunity or no, no opening for the receiver to ask questions, to become engaged in it, to have interaction with it, or else those interactions are so carefully staged and manufactured that the uh, receiver doesn't isn't fully aware of what they're doing in response to it.
0: Well now that uh, we've come up with a definition for persuasion let's talk about the characteristics of persuasion you've listed some in your book uh, i'm going to just read some key ideas here and you can give me your response to them uh, let's let's start with the idea that persuasion is audience oriented
1: so it should be clear that that persuasion really is about trying to get the audience to respond to a message, trying to understand who the audience is, uh, really trying to identify with the audience, because uh, if, you're, if you're not able to do that, then your messages just fall flat. And it's, it's important for persuasion today to, to really be able to use social media, to really be able to use images, to really be able to use appeals that will attract the different audiences that they're trying to attract.
0: Your uh, second characteristic is that uh, persuasive effects are overdetermined.
1: So that just means it, it's really difficult to isolate one particular reason that a persuasive message is effective because people have so many different aspects of their of their identity, of their culture, that it's difficult to know why two people respond to the same message in the same way. I think the election results of 2018, you, hear, you still hear a lot of speculation about uh, why this candidate won or, or why the Democrats picked up these seats, why the Republicans kept on to some Senate seats. And you hear a lot of different explanations, but it's very difficult to know if there's one overriding reason. So there's just so many different uh, explanations, so many different reasons out there today.
0: Third characteristic. Much is left unsaid
1: so persuaders don't need to say the whole story. They only need to throw out a few tidbits, throw out a few images, and people will be able to fill in the blanks uh, because we have such a great uh, store of common knowledge uh, because we're all exposed to many of the same media, even though they they might be from some different sources uh, we We still you know I can list a number of events and and uh, you can fill in the blanks based on, on what you know. So persuaders don't need to tell the whole story oftentimes when they do. They end up losing people. Uh, so they just out they just throw out, um, they just throw out some, some bait and hope that the audience takes the bait and, and fills in the blanks and comes to the conclusion that they want to come to.
0: Persuasion is ubiquitous but invisible. So we're constantly
1: surrounded by persuasion, but we often don't realize it. So I think probably the 2016 election clued a lot of people into the persuasiveness of Facebook. But I think prior to that, a lot of people would just get on their Facebook feed and read these uh, shares that their friends put out and not really think about how that was persuasion, not really think about all the invisible factors that went into creating that message that they shared. But I think probably the exposure has, has done a lot to get people to think more about what they share on Facebook and trying to get them to question a little bit more where that source came from. But we're surrounded by it, but we, but we really still don't understand it. We don't understand all of the. The ways that it's created and all the ways that it's spread.
0: And finally, persuasion variables are reflexive. So um,
1: as receivers, we are created by the persuaders who are trying to persuade us. So uh, it becomes, it perpetuates the same kinds of persuasive messages over time. So as you become accustomed to certain persuasive messages, they become part of your belief system, become part of your value system, and then they become part of how you evaluate future persuasive messages. So it's kind of a a constant process where receivers are being developed by persuaders to become effective receivers of future persuasive messages, if that makes sense
0: um could a simple example <clears throat> of this uh, reflexive technique be uh if a person wanted to argue that um, oh i didn't get this particular idea from a uh television commercial i got it from a more trusted source like my dad uh <laughs> and and uh and yet where did his dad get it from
1: uh, exactly yes. so it's so we you know it's just and that's where it becomes difficult to separate out where we first hear of different persuasive messages because we're hearing about them from so many different sources that it's tough to to go back and find out what the original source of that might be and that that's where where it really becomes a cultural to go back to the the media cultures it really becomes part of the the culture that we've become the kinds of receivers that persuaders want us to become.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, our whole culture is made up of those kinds of receivers, and so it's difficult to, to find people who are isolated or, or people who might have some different perspectives. Even people who might consider themselves outsiders probably are subject to different kinds of persuasive messages uh, to create the kind of image that they think of, uh, of themselves as.
0: Okay, so persuaders are always looking for ways to identify with us. Uh, What are some of the techniques they use to accomplish this?
1: Well, they certainly try to form relationships with us. Uh, Just about any persuader out there, if you think of political candidates, for instance, they're trying to create a relationship with their audience members. They're trying to show that they are like them, that they care about them, that they have similar interests, uh, even big companies, when you look at all their their Christmas advertising, for instance, they're trying to show that they are that they're like their audience, and they're and they're really trying to build that relationship. So, when you see a brand logo, for instance, you get a warm and fuzzy feeling and feel like you need to go shop there and need to to continue to support them. Repetition is is an important aspect of, of persuasion today. Uh, brand logos, for instance, are all over the place. It's hard to ignore them, and it's something that really helps break through the clutter of all the different messages that are out there. So uh, repetition becomes a, a very, very important technique. Also something that Kathleen Hall Jamison, a, a rhetorical theorist came up with, the idea of electronic eloquence. And that's where persuaders will speak in ways that um, play well on television, for instance. So they tell stories. They are concerned about images. Uh, they're concerned about uh, trying to uh, appeal to the the personal nature of people. So they they tell dis, uh, self disclosive stories or various things like that. So electronic eloquence is, is the way that persuaders can can really use television, use images to create relationships with audiences. Uh, commoditization is another one, and that's where it, it becomes... Um, Persuaders are always trying to put value on their products, put value on their ideas, put value on their apps, for instance. So it's um, so it's really a, a process about to to sell something. You've got to make it seem like it's worth something, and so that's where they invest a lot of time and energy in in increasing the worth of their products or increasing the worth of their brands. And then finally, telling stories. As I've mentioned uh, several times, telling stories, uh, getting the audience to really uh, clue into that uh, oral, culture, where they like to hear stories, they like to see stories complemented with pictures. Uh, but really, the if you think about it, the effective persuaders today have a good story to tell, and they're able to get the audience to become part of that story and even a character in that story so that the audience then identifies with them and creates the type of persuasive meaning that the persuader intended.
0: And uh, these stories don't necessarily have to be um accurate or uh, truthful, Um, you know, um, this is just simply a a type of rhetoric that uh, captures your attention. Isn't that right?
1: Exactly. Uh, I'm sure you can think of your own political examples of of stories that have been told that that turn out to not be true, but they have a lot of people that buy into them, a lot of people that support them, and uh, they become true for that, for that audience member as they're trying to evaluate the information.
0: With regard to the repetition of advertising, it seems to me that when people are subjected to the same message over and over, with no new or counter information, they may think, "Well, that must be the diet."
1: Yeah, I think um, we're we're constantly looking for information that confirms our worldview, and if all you see is uh, information that supports that uh, constantly, and don't get counter messages, yes, you you'll you will believe what you, what you see over and over again.
0: Well, Tim, analysis of the persuasion process will be an ongoing endeavor throughout this podcast series. And you have some general guidelines that can be mentioned now, don't you?
1: Well, first, um, audience members need to uh, be careful to evaluate information. So getting information from multiple sources, for instance, is a really good way to evaluate that information. Uh, try to go look it up. So before you share that Facebook post that your friend put out there, uh, go look at Snopes.com or some site that, like that that might explain whether it's a, an urban legend or a hoax. Uh, so so evaluating the information, uh, looking up uh, data from reliable sources. It can be a, an effective way of evaluating information, but it's really important to just not uncritically pass along information that we get, but really we need to think about it seriously and think about whether it's true or not. We also need to really understand the persuasive process. We need to understand that um, television companies are really just vehicles for advertising, and so the the they're trying to drive their uh, revenue they're trying to drive their audiences so that they can sell more advertising a lot of online uh, sites get get paid by the click and so the more provocative headline that they put out there the more clicks they get on it uh, the better it is for them even though that might not be that useful of information Uh, understanding how say for instance Facebook ads are targeted or to understand uh, where these different sources come from, uh, understanding really how how reporting works. Because I think a lot of what we hear today is uh, different news reports or fake news uh, without really understanding what all goes into good reporting and, and what goes into helping a story uh, make it into a newspaper, especially a, a prominent newspaper like the New York Times or Washington Post. And then finally, really uh, introspectively looking at at who we are as individuals and and really evaluating our own value and belief systems so that we don't get taken by some of these persuaders that are simply trying to flatter an image of of what we think that we are. So, um, you know, there's a lot of ways that we might invest in fashionable clothing, for instance, because we think that that's going to make us be more successful or or take out a gym membership because we think that's going to get us in shape. Really understanding, you know, what our beliefs are, what our values are, what makes us tick and help us to be immune from some of the persuasive messages that we might get.
0: Using your fashion example, when we're overly concerned about having the right look, it invites comparison between us and what we see on the screen, and the self is lost. I think
1: so. I think that we have a lot of people that are that kind of lose track of who they are or lose, lose track of, of what's important to them. I show like keeping up with the Kardashians, the whole premise of that is here's what you need to have to have the lifestyle of, of people who are happy and famous and wealthy. And we might feel like we don't measure up and, and, um, act out on, on that because, because who could live up to that lifestyle? So I think we, we get ourselves into, um, into a comparison, like you said, and, and it's tough to to know where to draw that line and say, you know, what, who I am is, is good enough. I don't need all of that, all of those bells and whistles and fancy cars and, and jewelry.
0: This information gives us a solid framework to build on for future programs. So thanks very much, Tim. Sure, I enjoyed talking with you. We'll be hearing more from Tim Borchers in future shows. Remember... You can find additional resources on our webpage at anchor.fm forward slash persuasion. Thanks for listening. See you soon.